Let's do this once more, my friends. Into the breach we go. Talking about China, friend or foe in the world. A question that every sovereign state has been asking itself for the last at least 20 years, if not 50, and certainly the last five, unless they've been uh, brain dead from the neck up of the government. So last night we talked a whole lot about very little. And that's a actually great thing to do when you're teaching stuff and educating people and having interactions and discourse. So I had intended to get through all of Chinese history, <laughs> 5,000 years of it, uh, last night in order to set the stage to talk about Taiwan and Indian Chinese territorial issues and Chinese Japanese territorial issues. But fortunately slash unfortunately, we had s such a great time that we didn't get that far. So we're going to have to now take a step back, which is fine, and pick up where we left off prematurely last night of, let's talk a little bit about China. I'm sorry, I should step back even a moment more from that. Did you say presentation view? We should step back even uh, a, 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 a time or two from that moment to uh, tell you who I am and what's going on here. For those that are clueless and just randomly clicked on this, my name is uh, Professor John Boyer at the greatest university east of the Mississippi. That's Virginia Tech here in Southwest Virginia, home of the Fighting Hokies. And we are doing a series of podcasts every week, starting last week, continuing on till the weeks before my imminent death. And we're going to choose one international topic and do several podcasts throughout the week on that singular topic, because you can't do it all in one moment. I have grown weary of the modern age where we think we're going to have five or ten minute videos describing events to people because you know what you can learn in five or ten minutes jack o nothing except where to buy products and that's why the modern era has tailored increasingly to sound bites throughout my entire life the entire world news commercial entities politicians everything have increasingly moved towards sound bites they want to say something in two seconds or less so that you'll do something. And that's fine, but that's that's uh, a data. That's information. That's propaganda. Uh, that, th those are sound bites. I am working on knowledge and wisdom. And that, my friends, takes more time. So everything I need to repeat again? You're, you're, just went, you're good. Okay. I'm just pulling up here. I was dashboard. gonna say last time I clicked a button and it went dark no, yeah. on the audio. I'm just putting up your dashboard. So anyway, not to get all esoteric about it, but we do a little bit more long form here, and I do believe that the world is going back to the future because people are now craving more deeper understanding and more knowledge-based things and more wisdom-based things. So this series of podcasts, every week, a different international topic. We're going to talk about it for as long as the people tuning in want to talk about it uh, over several nights. And this week we have chosen China, friend or foe, 
Uh, and that's not just because I'm based in the United States. This is not is the is China a friend or foe of the United States. This is no. This is more step back to look at the entire international picture. Many countries are looking at China, saying, "Hey, is it cool what's going on there? Uh, China is becoming a world power." Many would argue, including myself, it already is a world power. So, is China going to be a friend to our country, or is it going to be an opposition to our country? Uh, and I'm going to talk about several topics. Last night we uh, got so not far that we only got to talk about the geography and the uh, demographic situation in China, and we brought up the Uyghurs, a situation uh, that has gotten a lot of world press in the last one to three years that has made the world question what's going on in China, if it's good or bad or weird. And tonight I want to try, attempt to, try to get to what's going on with Taiwan. So uh, uh, this is just some slides. When we left off yesterday, we were talking about ethnicity in China, uh, minority groups in China, specifically the Uyghurs who uh, have been put in internment camps up to a million, perhaps more people put into internment and re-education camps in China to be taught how to be better slash proper Chinese citizens, which again, a lot of Chinese people, uh, Chinese citizens were tuning into the podcast last night and saying, what do you mean? Of course, China's awesome. China's great. The education camps are great. And that's because they only know what their government has told them. So of course they think it's great. For those of us on the outside, we look at that and say, mm, that seems weird. <laughs> That's not something our government would be allowed to do. We would not allow our government to do. Uh, and a lot of the other uh, parts of planet Earth say that's a little strange to put a certain ethnic group into re-education camps and teach them how to be proper humans. Most of us aren't cool with that. And I was finishing up the talk last night saying, and the Uyghurs are not the only one. Those are the uh, ones that have been most prominent in the recent news of Chinese minorities that have gotten perhaps not the greatest treatment by the Chinese government. Uh, uh, the Tibetans are the ones that most Americans my age, at least, uh, and not that much younger or that much older. Tibet is the place that most Americans understand is like, oh, that's part of China territorially, but it's different uh, humans. They're Tibetans. They're not Han Chinese. And perhaps they've not gotten a fair shake, especially this Dalai Lama guy. But there's also Mongolians, who are not ethnically Han Chinese in Inner Mongolia, where there's frictions that happen. And it came out just a couple weeks ago when U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited China. And right before he got there, there was a bunch of Mongolian public protests to point out their plight that they don't believe they've gotten a fair shake within the uh, greater Chinese society. And I ended with, uh, yeah, and... By the way, there's also this uh, environmental slash economic uh, disparity situation that China, most of China's nuclear power plants are located in areas that are non-Han Chinese places. <laughs> Again, back to Xinjiang, uh, which is uh, uh, primarily ethnically Uyghur. And so China puts some of its more questionable, more risky, more environmentally environmentally polluting 
uh, in energy sector in places that are not specifically Han Chinese. And by the way, for anybody that's just tuned in who's ethnically Han Chinese and thinks that I'm already racist or a horrible person or making fun of the Chinese government, other countries do this too, including the United States. The United States, a lot of the nastiest, dirtiest energy, I should say energy, a lot of the most polluting industrial sector of America is located in impoverished areas, in poor areas, in the ghetto. So this is not specific to China. It just was reinforcing a point that it was specific to the Chinese situation that they put these industries in non-Han Chinese areas, areas of other ethnicities that perhaps are being persecuted or otherwise not given a fair shake by the Chinese government. You already have a question already? Yeah. Holy cow, it's only been five minutes. Let's get our first question. By the way, my name's John Boyer. You can ask a question on any platform that you're looking at this at right now, and I will do my best to answer your questions all night. Can we give a shout out first? Eric Lynn's in the house. Eric Lynn is in the Oh, What's going on, Brother Lynn? Billy Bob Hobnob had questions from yesterday that I did not got to. I will try to do my best. Yes. Go, Billy Bob. Let's go. Um, I would say question number one is, will try to buy Russian Arctic land so they can claim to be an Arctic country? That's number question number one. Holy crap. That's a great question. Will China buy Russian Arctic land so that China can claim to be an Arctic power and therefore make Arctic claims? I have no, yes, Billy Bob, uh, that's a great question because as the uh, polar caps melt both in the North Pole and the South Pole, there now will be a scramble, and it's already underway in the North, to claim territorial waters as being part of countries that therefore they control those territorial waters in terms of transportation, and also they control those territorial waters for whatever's underneath them, natural gas or fish or walrus blubber, what the hell ever. So my, I do not know off the top of my head, Billy Bob, I can tell you this right now, why would Russia sell those lands? Uh, so if Russia controls those lands that have been there uh, here for two, frozen, and I love that, how often do I get to use here for two? Uh, lands in the Arctic have here for two been frozen and inaccessible. Most of us who are in the know, including all the governments of the world, probably have an inclination that there's gas or oil or fish under those frozen waters, or even if they're frozen lands under uh, uh, frozen ice under uh, lands like most of Greenland, all of us know now that there's rare earth elements in Greenland and probably other places. So you have exploitable mineral, uh, vegetal, fish, and, and energy resources in the Arctic, and everyone's going to want them. So, Billy Bob, here's my question back to you. Why would Russia sell that? We don't even know, and I say we as a species, we don't really exactly know what's under all this ice yet. We like to think we're supremely smart and already know all the answers. As a now old adult, Billy Bob, let me tell you, no one knows shit. We, we, we have an inkling. We kind of know, but we don't really know. And countries do not willingly give away or sell lands that they're not sure what's under them. Because why would you sell something for 10 bucks today 
when you find out tomorrow that it had a million bucks worth of natural gas under it. So my quick answer to you is I can't imagine Russia selling land to China when they're not sure what's under it yet. The more interesting question is, in the next 50 to 100 years, as Russia grows weaker and China grows stronger, will China invade those lands and take it? Ha ha ha! That's another podcast! And that, my friends, is happening covertly in the very eastern parts of Russia uh, that border China very slowly, very quietly, lots of ethnically Chinese people are moving across the border into Russia. But that's a podcast for a different time. Next question. Let me ask another question about university systems in China, but I think that's going to save for later because on top of that question of taking Biden... I don't know anything about university systems in China, so... They're like, why is it just going to the U.S. or just getting it? But the, main, the next question on top that plays in is, is B.T. Krieger? Uh... VT Krieger, like Krieger from Archer. <laughs> but they were on part of that of like buying land there. Say, are there ethnically Chinese areas outside of China current claims they could seek to annex, as in Russian Crimea? VT Krieger asks, are there other parts uh, of the world outside of China proper that have a significant number of ethnically Han Chinese people that the Chinese government is claiming as Chinese territory? Yes. It's called the South China Sea, and that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. And you know how those ethnically Chinese people got to small little islands in the South China Sea? The Chinese government sent them there. <laughs> the Chinese government has actually sent pregnant Chinese women to rocks in the South China Sea to squat and kick out a baby and claim a baby was born here the baby is ethnically Han Chinese, therefore, the property it was born in is ethnically Han Chinese property. I know. If I was making it up, we would all be laughing way harder, except that it's real. And it's part of the claim that the Chinese government has on other territories. We could also point out the Senkaku Islands that are debated or disputed between Japan and China, although nobody sent pregnant women there yet, as far as I know. Uh, but the South China Sea little islands are the ones that are much more contested, and I hope that I get to talk about them tomorrow. Cool? Okay. Other questions before I get to the lecture, which I have no hopes of getting through already, and I could not be happier about that. Maybe you know about this. I don't know. So a student, a student asked, Jim Kim, this is a Twitch. Zero's, actually, it's maybe on there. Um, mm. Maybe you haven't seen it yet. It's, it does quad have any impact on China? And I asked, what is quad? Quad rattle? Quad. No, I got the quad. You know quads. So I, I know, know all about the quad. Does that have any impact on China? The quad's going to come up perhaps tomorrow, or maybe it's Thursday. I kind of think I got a lecture every day this week. So the quad is a new term. I love new terms. Who doesn't love new terms? So the quad is a new term, which I, it's so new, I haven't even talked about it in my World Regions class yet. And it is a, uh, oh, I, I well, I don't even know what you call it. It's a group of countries that this, it's nothing formal about it. Hell, they don't even have anything written down on paper, much less an agreement. But the Quad is four democracies who are trying to align themselves with each other in order to counter the expansive uh, territorial and political ambitions of China. Now, the Quad would not say that, but I'm telling you the truth. 
not propaganda, not what people, not what organizations or entities or countries want you to uh, think. I'm telling you what is going on. And so the Quad is coming together. These four countries are coming together to try to, I won't say quash or push back on, but to check China's growing influence in the world. And the Quad is four democracies who are allies of each other, and all of them are kind of rich too. Let me see if the chat rooms across multiple platforms can name me who the Quads are. I'll give you a hint. I'm going to tell you one of the four, because that's what Quad means, four. One of the four that's leading this charge is the United States of America. That's the easy one. Who else around China might be interested in joining an entity called the Quad? God, I love the Quad. I just want to talk about the Quad now. Who else would be interested in joining the Quad to check growing Chinese influence across the Pacific slash Indian oceans? And that's helping. I just said Indian ocean. So who else is a big economy and a full-fledged democracy? We got some answers. Yeah, who are the answers? So, I think Michael. Uh, Jakob says South Korea. Very good guess, Jakob, but that actually is not one of the answers. Um, Michael Atatark on YouTube says India, U.S., Aussie. Jay Kim on uh, uh, Twitch says India. That's, that's number two. Already said U.S. India is number two. Uh, yeah, I heard uh, Jakob said Japan. That's number three. And then you heard. Michael Atatürk said Australia. And Australia. Jakob, uh, uh, I'm sorry, who? Michael Atatürk. Ma Michael Atatürk. Atatürk, like uh, from Turkey. Uh, the ghost of Atatürk is in the hizzle. Uh, and he came up with the number four, and that's Australia. So uh, the United States, Japan, Australia, India. South Korea may join the, the quad, in which case it would be a quintet. <laughs> there might be other entities that join, but the United States is leading the charge on this because all uh, two of those other three countries are pretty strong allies in the United States. Japan and Australia, significantly strong allies in the United States. India is a newfound ally of the United States, and India has its own issues with China. So it's not joining the quad because it's a great buddy of the U.S. India is joining the quad because it wants to become a great buddy of the U.S. And it has its own issues with China. And so when in doubt, when you're going up against a gigantic adversary, do you want to go it alone or have some friends? And that's why India has joined the quad. So great job to all of you who know what I'm talking about with the quad. It's really freaking brand new as an entity on the planet. But I only pointed out, I only would waste my breath because I think it's just now beginning and has a big future. I look at the quad. Damn it, I should just do a whole lecture just on the quad. Oh, crap. I hit the computer so hard it went backwards. <laughs> I want to do a whole lecture on the quad now because I, in my, my bones... I'm a futurist. All I think about, my friends, is how the world works now and how it's going to work in the future. So I'm a futurist, and I'm looking at the quad saying, I already know where this is going. The quad, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. The quad is the introductory skeletal formation of a Pacific-based NATO. That's right, you heard it here first. 
NATO is the North Atlantic, hey, that's an ocean, North Atlantic Treaty Organization that's a defensive organization built after World War II in order to counter the growing aggression of this thing called the Soviet Union. It was a defensive pact that said, hey, we're all in this club together. And if the Soviet Union attacks anybody, then collectively we'll all attack them back. I believe in my bones that the Quad is the first level integration of a Pacific-based NATO. And the thing is, it's just so young they're calling it the Quad because there's four countries. But they already have the acronym in place. So it's not going to be NATO, North Atlantic. It's going to be PATO. <laughs> Damn, I just invented it. The North Pacific. Oh, no, that's not PATO. North PATO Pacific. It's going to be POTO. <laughs> the Pacific Ocean Treaty Organization. POTO. POTO. Somebody write this shit down because at least a, a, no less than a month in like the Atlantic or the New York Times or uh, Asia Straits Times out of Singapore, somebody's going to say POTO. I am saying POTO first. The Pacific Ocean Treaty Organization, although I should put an I in there for the Indian Ocean. Damn it. Poito? <laughs> Poito is coming, my friends. So the, uh, Poito is going to be a... Poto slash Poito is going to be the countries in the Pacific slash Indian Oceans that are going to come together under a strategic alliance to say, hey, if China attacks any of you countries, any of our countries, then we as a collective voice will respond. And that will be the exact same thing that NATO did to the Soviet Union. To be a check on... Aggression's too harsh of a term. But any sort of... Um, uh, obvious or overt aggression that China might uh, uh, in the future incur against a country. That POTO will say, hey, you, you better not do that because if you attack, say, South Korea, or if, if China attacks, mm, let's get risky, Vietnam, Vietnam will join POTO tomorrow. I think we got to have a POTO lecture now. Yes. I think we gotta, got to I've got to do POTO Friday. <laughs> so, uh, uh, if Poto would be to join, uh, uh, sorry, Vietnam would join Poto. Uh, Vietnam and China have a not great relationship. They've attacked each other in the past many times. They've been at war with each other. So Vietnam would definitely join Poto because it would say, hey, I want in a defensive organization that says if China attacks us, that all the other countries come to help us. So Poto could be a potent, <laughs> a potent Poto uh, could really check. Uh, any sort of Chinese aggression or Chinese growth in terms of controlling uh, neighboring countries or the oceans. And the United States is definitely all about that. But it's not alone. India's about that, too. Japan's a little worried about that. So POTO could be uh, the future. Damn it. Here we are. Half hour in. I've only got to slide one. Should we just keep answering questions or go forward? You ready to move forward? Uh, Poto, I just made up Poto. I would say move it forward a little bit just to get some. Because there are questions about Taiwan. Think right. So I was going to talk about Taiwan tonight, and I can't tell you about Taiwan before I teach you a little bit of the background about Taiwan. I'm sorry. I'm one of those old school professors. I know. 
I'm not just old. I'm old and white. I'm old, white, and clueless about technology and the younger generations. But I'm so old that I just kind of think you need to know some background to understand the sound bites that you hear. Let all the other places give you sound bites. Let me teach you what those sound bites mean. So we got to go into 5,000 years of Chinese history. If you want to learn why Taiwan is a flashpoint uh, for future major conflict on planet Earth, you have to know why. You have to understand the background. And here we go. So I left off last lecture talking about the geography and the ethnicity of China. And I said, okay, so this is the layout of land and the piece of live on land. But who are these pieces? What is it to be Chinese? What is Chinese culture? Uh, and we'll get to that right now. And Chinese culture, when we think of Chinese things, uh, China is a major world cultural hearth, which means that every aspect of human existence, China is the center of a unique angle on that. So art, architecture, uh, uh, calligraphy, writing, writing styles, ethnicity, uh, philosophy, cuisine, all of it. China is a major cultural hearth. Europe is one. Africa is one. Perhaps Russia is one. China is a distinct cultural hearth where everything is different. Every aspect of everything humans do is unique. And China has been doing it perhaps longer than any other place, including Africa and Europe and Latin America and Russia and the United States. They've been doing it longer. They've been around longer. So every single component of human existence, what it means to be a human and everything that you do in a human life is unique in China. And they're so good at what they've done and they've done it so long, it's exuded outward to other places in its vicinity. And not just for tangential things like art, architecture, and food, but I mentioned philosophy and religion and government styles and famous humans that have lived and affected the thought process of not millions, but billions and billions of humans' existence have been affected by Chinese scholars, Chinese philosophers, and Chinese ways of life. So I only point this map out because I usually use something like this when I'm talking about Chinese religion in particular or religion in general. But there is a big divide between East and West on planet Earth of philosophies and religions. And China is this hearth there. Stuff is unique on how to live, uh, how to live well, uh, heaven and hell, how to run a state. Uh, how to treat your uh, 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 mother and father, how to treat your children. Everything they do is unique and it has been expressed in such an important way that it's affected thought processes across planet Earth. The Confucian, Taoist, Buddhism uh, 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 combination is unique to East Asia, specifically to the uh, Chinese core. So last lecture I left off with, there are big differences between Eastern and Western China physically, geographically, geologically, meteorologically, climatologically, uh, but also demographically. But there are also big differences between East and West on planet Earth. 
And when we think of Eastern thought, Eastern philosophy, Eastern cuisine, Eastern this, Eastern that versus Western, all those things, China has always been kind of the epicenter of all things Eastern. It's one of the reasons why the Westerners called it the Far East. The Far East referenced China. China and all those other places around China were the Far East of, say, Western Europe. Chinese culture is the anchor of the East. And I don't mean to make any offense to the Koreans or the Japanese or the Vietnamese uh, or the Taiwan, Taiwanese or the Thais. But China has been such a huge and important influence on all the things that I've been talking about for the last five minutes that their influence has exuded out to all the surrounding areas. And it's been doing it for not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. China is the East. It is the innovator and creator of many, many, many things that then were adopted by the Koreans or the Japanese or the Vietnamese or the Taiwanese and then modified into their own unique little things in those particular places, but they started in China. So big differences between East and West, big differences between capital E East and capital W West. But the thing I am trying to get to is China has forever been a world power, fiercely independent and semi-isolationist. I'm starting to rethink the whole semi-isolationist thing. Were they intent? When you say the word isolationist, that has an a inclination that you want to separate yourself from the world, that you don't want to interact with the world. For instance, not to get into American politics, which bores the living hell out of me, but the Trump administration, history will define them as isolationist. The Trump administration for four years has said, we don't care about the outside world. We don't want to interact with the outside world. We don't want to trade with the outside world. We want to make America great again by doing everything here. And that's fine. Not trying to offend your political sensibilities about the upcoming U.S. election. But it, that is an isolationist attitude that you don't want to be a part of the world. You don't want immigrants. You don't want to accept the outside world. You want to be you and only you. That's isolationism. China, uh, for uh, most scholars and even myself for most of my career, have said China has historically been isolationist, much like the U.S. is being right now. I'm starting to rethink that a little bit. It could be that China, much like the Trump administration, perhaps they're not isolationist. They just want to reap all the benefits of the world, but not give anything back. To not be uh, China for most of its history knew about the outside world, but didn't want to take any of its ideas unless it benefited them. And they wanted to sell stuff to the outside world. They wanted to, they want to send their ideas out to the outside world, but they weren't trying to be a leader of the outside world. They weren't trying to go out and say, hey, we're going to take over North America. We want to have a world political system in which we have a voice. China's never been interested in that. It's That's very recent that they even care what anybody in the world thinks about China. That's new. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let me get to Kung Fu Panda shows up last here. I want you to understand that we all know lots of stuff about China, at least in cultural reference and passing. It's only been in the modern era that the world's culture has kind of penetrated China. So China has been a world power forever, been a center of ideas and technology and innovation forever. And it's always been one way. China exports that to the rest of the world. 
they're not that interested in your ideas or trading with you or buying your stuff. That's not been the Chinese way. China is the world's oldest continuous state. And this is even before people came up with the concept of the sovereign state. That's another new idea. But China has been a sovereign state for, the, for longer than anybody else and, and a continuous one. So what I mean by sovereign state is that there's a certain territory that a certain group of people who call themselves Chinese and say our state is Chinese and we're in control of the state that we think is Chinese and no one else has any control over the, the, this state, this territory that we're in. Only we, the government, control that. China's been doing that longer and for more continuous time than anybody else. A land with a distinct and continuous four to five thousand year history four to five thousand years it's almost comical i always have to take a little interlude right here and say hey everybody america's awesome right the united states is the richest country in the world the united states affects so much don't they oh my god the united states is so important they are so important how old is the united states how old is the united states of america it's freaking 200 years old. You know what? If you want to push it back to Jamestown, it's 400 years old. But it wasn't even a state back then. So you, I always want Americans and the world to understand context. Context. The Chinese people are an exceptionally proud people. And they've got every damn right to be a proud people. Because their state has been around four to 5,000 years longer than all the other states, including the United States of America, which has a whopping 200-year history compared to four to 5,000 years of Chinese history. So keep that in mind. Whenever you're like, oh, China's bad, China's terrible, China's like, this, 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 this. they've been around the block a few more times than our state has. So pay attention and learn stuff. On top of that, they historically are based on authoritarian regimes. So while I, uh, many times last night, suggested that, you know what, China's a great state, and China's really rich, and China is a world power. China is probably soon the major world power. Uh, and China is really rich, and China has the most millionaires on planet Earth. And all of that put together, not my cup of tea, because I don't like authoritarian regimes. But that's me. I grew up here. I grew up in a democracy. I grew up in the Western world. China, for most Chinese people, is doing quite fine. Thank you very much. And it's awesome because it has historically based, been based on authoritarian regimes. China has no experience with democracy. And up to this point, it expresses no interest in democracy. Yes, there's democratic movements from time to time in China, but it's not been enough to tilt the balance of power one way or the other. In fact, hardly at all. So even the Tiananmen Square massacre was a democratic movement that thousands of people showed up to. And in the Western world, we're like, oh my gosh, thousands of people showed up for a protest? That's a big deal. Well, it is until you consider math. This thing called math. And when thousands of people show up in America, whoa, that's kind of important. 
because America has 300,000 citizens. If a thousand people show up in China, who cares? They have 1.5 billion people. That's not a popular movement. So there is no great push for democracy, at least not yet, in China. And the whole point of my little bullet point is they don't have any history of it. So don't make the mistake of saying, oh my gosh, China's people are so screwed because they are uh, under uh, an authoritarian regime and it's horrible and it's terrible and don't they yearn to be free? They don't have any experience with it and they have four to 5,000 years of experience with another type of regime which has done them quite well. Thank you very much. So you have to understand the Chinese mentality and we even had Chinese uh, citizens who were tuning in last night who were adamant that I was wrong because I was saying, well, the Chinese government controls all the press, and so the Chinese government also controls all education. So the Chinese people only learn what the Chinese government wants them to learn. And the Chinese government teaches uh, 1.5 billion Chinese people that the Dalai Lama is an incarnation of the devil straight from hell to try to come kill them all and eat their babies. That's what the government wants 1.5 billion Chinese people to learn. That's what they're taught. That's what they know. And so we had a few people uh, from China on last night going, you don't, you're wrong. You don't understand. The Dalai Lama does eat babies. And I'm like, dudes, I get it. Your government controls the message. You're in an authoritarian state. What I'm trying to teach you is the government's telling you what the government wants to tell you. It's telling you what the government wants you to know. By the way, do I think the U.S. government is any better? No, but we have free press here. So the government could say that the Dalai Lama wants to eat your babies, but then outside press would say that's the stupidest thing ever and there's no factual basis on that and here's science and history and facts and you can't say that. So we're a more, um, let's say, non-authoritarian society that questions our government and questions things our government says, which uh, uh, coming from a democracy I think is healthy and good. Uh, the Chinese people, by and large, not making fun of them. Why would I? They've grown up in a system. They've been told one thing. And why would you ever question that one thing if the government tells you this one thing and your school teachers tell you the same thing and your teachers tell you the same thing and you go to church and the church people tell you the same thing? Why would you think anything else? Of course you believe that is fact. That's not necessarily means fact. So historically, based on authoritarian regimes uh, and the Chinese peoples and the Chinese governments seem to work under this relationship, a situation that we find odd in the West, but that's because we're a different cultural hearth. We come from a different background and a different history and think about things a different way. Cool? I'm sure it's not cool with all the Chinese people I just pissed off, but that's, that's fine. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just telling you the way the world works, not what you want to hear. So a 4,000 and 5,000 year history, historically based on authoritarian regimes, are there aspirations for democracy in China? Probably by some, but not by the majority. Trust me, if 1.5 billion people want something, 1.5 billion people are going to get that something. And there's not a big, big, huge drive for democracy in China. Otherwise, they would have it already. On top of that, it is historically, and I think I'm repeating myself now, Historically, a center of technology and innovation. This, you can dispute the authoritarian regime and the propaganda by the Chinese government issues that I just pointed out. You can dispute that with me. But you can't dispute this. 
put it to rest. You Westerners, you Europeans, you America Firsters, this is just a fact. China has historically been a center of technology and innovation for 10 to 100 times longer than the United States has even existed. And I always like to um, point out it has historically been the center of action. So we humans only live at max about 100 years. So we only know the 100 years we've lived in. And we accept the 100 years that we are currently living in as the history of humankind. So we're like, well, the United States is the greatest. The United States is the most richest country and we're awesome and we won the Cold War and we won World War II and we're great and awesome and everybody loves us and people watch Hollywood movies and we're great. So that's the way it's always been. Again, check yourself. The United States has been around for a whopping two centuries. China has been around for a whopping 40 to 50 centuries. And it has classically and historically been the center of action when it comes to uh, technology, to innovation, to new inventions, to culture, to art. China has held that role exponentially longer than the United States has, or even Western European states. And so I like to uh, throw up my famous Asian world history you must know. And I always tell students, okay, sharpen up your pencils. I get them every time, back when I used to lecture live. I'm like, okay, this is serious. Seriously, this is, this is for real serious. I need to, I'm gonna tell you about 5,000 years of Asian history. <sighs> I need you to write all this down because I want you to remember. And then I say, and then I show them these slides, right? And uh, I, I do it really, really fast until I stop and tell people this is a joke. So here you go. Asian world history you must know to understand life in different world regions. Uh, 1000 BC, that's BC, um, China is the shizzle. I used to say the shit, but then I tried to get politically correct for a little bit. 1000 BCE, China is the shit in terms of world powers, world leaders, center of, centers of technology and innovation. 500 BC, China is still the shit when it comes to technology, culture, center of innovation. 0 AD BC, Jesus is born, China is still the shit. Roman Empire is around. The Roman Empire is saying, hey, who are those people over in China who are doing all this crazy shit? A 500 AD, 500 years after Jesus, China is still the shit. The biggest economy on planet Earth, the center of shit, where Marco Polo and everybody want to go trade with, that's China, because they got all the shit. But let's continue. 1000 AD, China is the shit. Well, 1100s Chinese uh, culture is still shit. And this is when I stop, because people are furiously writing stuff down. I'm like, okay, you can stop writing stuff down now. This is, this is comedy you're going to get it without writing it down. Because a 1300s AD, uh, China is the shizzle, despite the Mongols invading them and taking them over. Why did the Mongols invade and take over China? Because they were the shit. They had all the money. They had the innovation. That's where the action is. You take those places over because you want that stuff. But we can continue on. 1400s, the uh, uh, Mongols have gone away. China is still the shizzle. 1500s. The age of European colonialism and expansion kicks off and China is still the shit. And you can go back and look at history and say, hey, what were the Europeans trying to do? Well, they went out and took over the Americas. They then took over Africa. Then they took over India. And they mostly were trying to progress over to take over China. Why? Because China was the shit. 
because China had all these great things that Europeans wanted, like tea, like silk, uh, like this. I can I always forget this is um, uh, fancy porcelain. It's decorated. It's really nice. Like when you have Thanksgiving dinner, you're gonna pull out your nice fine china to serve your dinner on. Why do you think it's called China? Because it's from China? No, it, the name is synonymous. It actually was from China. They were the biggest exporters of like everything back in the day. And the Europeans wanted to get there to get all of those things. So by the 1600s, China is the shizzle and the Manchus achieve its largest territorial extent. Damn, we talked about the Manchus last night, the Jurchens. Yes. Holy crap, this is all coming home to roost. The Jurchens slash Manchus were another non-Han Chinese entity that took over uh, and controlled all of China proper, the China we know today, and took over places we can now call Tibet and places we now call Xinjiang and places we now call Inner Mongolia. Hey, if you tuned in last night, you know what all that means. So the biggest territorial expansion of China came under a group that was not Han Chinese. I always love to point that out. That really pisses off diehard Chinese nationalists because they're like, no, Han Chinese are the best. We did everything. We own Tibet. And it's like, no, the Jurchens actually took Tibet under your name. But I'm not trying to just tick off Chinese nationalists. This little Asian world history is all about you understanding that, yeah, this place has been important for a very long time. China has been important for world history as a center of everything long before there was a Europe and way long before there was a United States. So China has been in the game for a very long time. And speaking of territorial expansion that I was just talking about under the Manchus, I'm going to show you a series of slides and it's not important that you understand or take notes or that you're like, oh, I get it. It's here. Just look at, or take screenshots, just look at the parts of where the classic Chinese territory was, classically where it was, how it expanded, and then how it expanded at the very end. So a long time ago, we're talking 2000 BCE, the true core of Chinese civilization is in the, what we now call the core of China in the East. So the Shang Dynasty, way back in the day, then expanded uh, 2,000 years later to the Han Dynasty. And I do, for you historians, want to point out that the Han Dynasty was roughly the exact same period as the Roman Empire. So about 200 BC to about 200 AD. As the Roman Empire was everything to the West, the Han Dynasty was everything in the East. But look at how it expanded. It, the Han Dynasty was expanding across the eastern part of China, but also into the interior, into an area now called Xinjiang and parts of Tibet. Uh, and now I'm just randomly picking off empires, by the way. There's lots of give and take between these dates I'm showing you. But the Tang Dynasty was another important era where it was a very important and powerful Chinese emperor and Chinese dynasty. And Every period uh, of uh, a powerful Chinese dynasty, they expand, much like the United States or France or the United Kingdom. When you're powerful, you expand and take over other eras, uh, areas. And when you're weak and that dynasty collapses, you retract. 
So Chinese history has been a series of powerful entities that take over more, and then they crash and burn, and they uh, retract and become smaller. So Tang Dynasty in 13, uh, or, uh, uh, 500 AD, up to the Ming Dynasty in 1368, uh, up to the Manchu. And this is when China re- achieves its greatest territorial extent, as I pointed out now a couple times, under the Jurchens, which weren't, weren't even Han Chinese. But this is when they take over all of Mongolia, all of Tibet, all of Xinjiang, uh, parts of Southeast Asia. They really were at their height in terms of territory about this period, 1650. So when we think about current issues with Tibet and Xinjiang, it's really only about four or 500 years ago that China takes over these areas proper and has kind of held on to them since. Again, as historians, you look at this and say, well, do you really have a claim over an area you only took over 400 years ago? But if you're an American, you're like, 400 years? Hell, that's twice as long as our country's been alive. So, of course, it's yours. And that's what the Chinese government claims. They're like, what are you talking about? Of course, it's ours. We've had this forever, slash 400 years. So, they did give up Mongolia in an era of weakness in China. And that's what I'm going to try to get to before midnight tonight. But this is China present day. uh, And it does include everything that you think of as classic China. But also eras, I'm sorry, areas like Taiwan, which aren't even lit up on this map for reasons that perhaps we'll get to. And areas of the South China Sea, which China says, that's ours. We have that. It's ours. And it's like, South China Sea is not even on this map. It's too far south. But China says, no, it's ours. We had it a long time ago. It's ours again. You're like, okay. How far do we go back in history to suggest that states own pieces of property of planet Earth. So I already told you that, well, China, for most of its history, has been semi-isolationist. That is, it's a core of learning, a core of education, a core of philosophy, a core of art, a core of everything that exudes outward. And it knew about the outside world. Of course it did, because Ideas sometimes float in, like Buddhism. Buddhism is not from China. It's from India. But Buddhism migrated to China and had a big impact. Uh, And China traded with the rest of the world, mostly one way. China produced stuff. You buy stuff. We make stuff. You buy stuff. You buy stuff from us. Money comes here. We give you stuff. You give us money. Uh, Including uh, the Silk Road, which was built primarily so that Middle Easterners and Europeans could get stuff from China that they wanted. Spices and silks and porcelain, a.k.a. China. So China has always known about the outside world. It just always said we're not that interested in the outside world's wares. We're China. We are awesome. We are the center of the universe. And by the way, I'm not saying that to make fun of them, that they were so egotistical. There's actually a place in China called the center of the universe. Actually, it's a palace, right? Katie, we went there. And the palace, there's a point that's like China is the center of the universe. If you Again, if you think that's egotistical, ask any average American right this second before they vote in the upcoming election, what's the center of the world? And they'll say America. Every powerful state... Every, uh, every average citizen of a powerful state says, we're the best country that's ever lived. God loves us the most. We are the center of the universe. 
And I won't, I'm not even picking on rednecks or goofballs in America. I'd say the average American would say, yes, America's the greatest country ever. God loves us the most and we're the center. Put it in the Chinese context, they were on top and in charge and the leader of everything for 4,000 years. They, the average Chinese person has much more logic behind saying, of course, we're the center of the universe. Everything emanates from us. And that's been the way that it is. It affects a Chinese uh, philosophy. It affects the average Chinese mind. It affects the uh, Chinese government's foreign policy. Of course, we're the center of the universe. They have been isolationists for most of their history because they are the center. People come to us to get learning. We don't go to them. People come to us for ideas. We don't go to them. People come to us to buy stuff. We don't go to them to buy stuff. And if you think that's being a little bizarre and facetious on my part, consider world trade balances right now. What has China been famous for for going on 40 years? For making everything. China makes everything. Go into the average Walmart on planet Earth and 90% of the shit there is made in China. So this is not a historical thing that I'm throwing back to this earlier age where all the Europeans and Middle Easterners and South Asians and Southeast Asians went to buy porcelain and silk and spice from China. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Wasn't that a hilarious ancient throwback to the old world? Bullshit. That's the same stuff. Same story, different century. China still is a major exporter of planet Earth, still stocks the store shelves across all of planet Earth. That's how they were rich 2,000 years ago. That's how they're rich in the 21st century. Damn it, I feel like I need a mic drop at any given point. I still haven't even got to the series history yet. I got to pause for a water break and then I'll take some questions. What's going on? Thank you, Jakob. Thank you, everybody who's got a chat going on Twitch. I have it in front of me, but just so you know, I get passionate when I'm talking. And so I'm talking the camera and I'm in the moment and so I'm not always looking at the text. So let me answer some questions and catch everybody up and I'm sorry I've ignored you. It's not intentional. I'm just old. I'm sorry, you had a question maybe repeat it now. I can't been a lot. Well go ahead. Pick me one. Pick me a question. I'm sorry I'm gonna look at the chat room on on Twitch and see if I can figure out how to do it. There's just so many windows. I'm an old man. I can't keep up with <laughs> uh, thank you, Jakob. Jakob said, I'm sorry, Prof, that calligraphy that I stole from online is actually Japanese kanji. I do not dispute that, Jakob. I just grab stuff from online when I'm making presentations sometimes. I'm like, ah, oh, well, it looks like Chinese calligraphy. Uh, let's see. I'll start with the uh, most recent ones first just because the damn thing always defaults when somebody adds another comment. Uh, let's see. Uh, Holly Goo says, uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, that's because Jakob says, I totally watch a Tarantino movie called Boyer Uncensored. Well, thank you, Jakob. And then Hollis Goo say, I totally agree with that. Hollis Goo also says, Tang is the most prosperous dynasty in the history. I have heard that, Hollis Goo, but I'm not a in-depth Chinese history person. But I actually have heard that as well, that the Tang, uh, 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 the uh, Han dynasty, was the most powerful and most important dynasty in Chinese history in the 
classic age. In the truly old, ancient times, classic age, Han was the most important. A lot of stuff happened during the Han era. And actually, even pre-Han, Confucius and Taoism, all that happened actually pre-Han in, uh, oh gosh, what was that age? It was the Warring States age. Warring States age was actually quite important for Chinese philosophy. Uh, but the Han Dynasty, which again concurred with the Roman Empire, uh, was very important for a whole lot of other things, including legalism, uh, uh, the reinterpretation of Confucianism, uh, and a lot of the groundwork for the modern Chinese state happened during the Han Dynasty, as well as a major interaction between the East and West when the Han Dynasty actually had interaction with uh, far afield as the Roman Empire. But I have heard that the Tang actually totally kicked ass, too. And then Yakov follows up with that. Tang was definitely not isolationist, as Persian and Arab merchants cons uh, constantly sailed to China. That's also how Islam spread into eastern China. Damn, Yakov, you should have a YouTube slash Twitch channel, man. You know way more than I do. Uh, and yes, I agree with all those things. Uh, and the, uh, when we say isolationist, when we're looking back at two, even just 2,000 years of history, much less four or 5,000, we're, look, we're making generalizations. So all of the awesome people who are making these comments on Twitch who know way more about specific things than I do, and I totally admit that, well, you do have to understand that as someone looking back, I'm a generalist by trade, and even historians have to generalize. You can't mention every single person's life and every single thought and every single opinion. So we're always generalizing to say, here's roughly what was going on. So, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the Han was fairly interactive, uh, but it was in a different era of human history where there wasn't as much interaction as today's world. The Tang were a bit interactive. So when I say that China has been isolationist, again, I'm rethinking that, but in general, that's true. And when I say isolationist, it's not like a modern America Trump isolationism where the Trump people say, we don't want to have anything to do with the whole world. We don't care. We want to seal off the borders. China was never quite like that. It's more that China has always been used to a, a leadership role. And let's just say, call the spade a spade, an egotistical opinion that our society is the best. And why do we need something from somewhere else? Now, you can argue that point with me that, oh, no, China didn't think that, but it kind of did. And especially when it came to business, China, almost through its entire history, has been very protective. China was the first of make China great again. Trump totally stole that from China. China, throughout all of its history, has said, no, we should have businesses here. We should support local businesses if we have any interaction with the outside world, the government should control it and make sure that that interaction does not affect Chinese merchants, Chinese mercantile products, Chinese agriculture. We, the Chinese government, are going to make sure if anything happens, it's going to benefit us, not hurt our industries. And that was true 2,000 years ago. And I'm sorry, my friends, that chisel was true 20 years ago as well. China is being um, attacked voraciously by the Trump administration and Europeans, by the way. I don't mean to keep picking on the Trump administration. I don't give a shit. I'm just telling you what's going on. 
So the Trump administration voraciously attacked uh, China since they got into office saying, hey, look, the Obamas and the Bushes before us totally screwed up. They gave away all our technology to China. They let all our businesses, businesses go to China. And the price of entry of going to start business in China 20 years ago for Microsoft or Nike shoes or pick your company, the price of entry into the Chinese market was that the Chinese government said, you can come here and start a factory. But as part of that deal, you will surrender all the technology and share it with us. And by and large, and this is for Ford Motor Company, everybody. And by and large, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, but certainly 20 years, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, all these companies went into China and saying, of course, hell, we'll give you whatever you want because we want access to 1.5 billion consumers and we're willing to sell you my mother's virginity to get in here. You can have it. You want my firstborn kid? Have them. Didn't like them anyway. You can take whatever you want. We want access to your consumers. So we can make fun of the Chinese government in hindsight for being isolationist or egotistical or self-centered. But what government doesn't do that? And China was trying to catch up technologically with everybody. And they were saying, hey, look, if you're going to get something out of this deal, we are getting something out of this deal. You surrender the technology that you want to produce here and we'll let you come in here and have access to our markets. It was an extremely savvy move that, again, the Trump administration and a lot of European countries are now pissed off at China for doing. But at the end of the day, China didn't make any of those companies do that. They didn't hold a gun to Nike's head and said, hey, you have to give us this technology. They said, here's the deal. And those individual companies took the deal. So I'm defending China a little bit right now, which I'm usually not in a position of doing, but they're being attacked right now. And again, the Trump administration is saying, we're going to have this trade embargo against China because of unfair practices and they didn't let our companies in and we don't have a fair competitive trading situation. And it's like, you're right, you don't. And whose fault is that? You're blaming the country that actually was on the better end of the deal? And so if you were on the better end of the deal, should China be attacking you? It is what it is. This is just getting back to the point that I'm making with these great comments I'm getting on the chat room here. Governments look out primarily after their own societies. The American government mostly looks out after Americans. The French look out after the French. The, Thai, uh, uh, the South African government looks out after South African people the most. That's life. It seems to me in today's world that there's a little bit of sour grapes occurring that people are like, China does all these bad things because they're bad and bad and bad and they're because they're bad. And it's like, they're doing the same thing your government has been doing. They just did it a little bit better for the last 20 years. And they did it to catch up technologically and economically with the rest of the world, which they've done quite fabulously, by the way. So that's as far down the road of defending the Chinese. And that gets to back to my point of when I say isolationism, I would still say that even 20 years ago, the Chinese government wasn't isolationist. So isolationist purely in terms of shutting off the borders. But isolationism is uh, when we think about this economically in the modern world, 
It's that you control the flow of things to your own benefit. No one is truly isolationist. No one is putting up a wall around their country because their country wouldn't function. But isolationist regimes in today's world, take they, they put up barriers to take just what they want without giving anything back. And that's why the Chinese government's being made fun of in today's world, because they did it really well for the last 20 years. So I would still say, yeah, they have an isolationist streak in terms of China first, and we're only going to take what we want, and we're not interested in anything else. We're not interested in absorbing your culture. We're not interested in seeing your movies or reading your books or Western culture or having fair trade. Who the hell wants that? What the hell does fair trade mean anyway to a country? Fair trade to any country means we get something we want. So China's just being uh, very more forthright on that. And they have been that historically. Historically, China's been a workshop of the world. They make tons of stuff that the rest of the world buys. That's why they got rich. 2,000 years ago, that's why they got rich 20 years ago. Different shit. I'm sorry. Same shit. Different millennium. SSDM. Millennium. Question. Yes. Uh, Scarface says, what do you think is going to happen with a Hong Kong riot slash issue? That actually is going to be another podcast we're going to do later this week. What's that? Uh, how has the Chinese Belt Initiative impacted? This is from J. Kim 0607. How has the Chinese Belt Initiative impacted the southern east countries? I'm not sure what that means. Southern, Southeast Asia countries, I think. Does it play any economically benefit for the existing countries or does it exist to abuse them? Actually, I think what I just ranted about for the last five minutes assesses that. Every country looks out after itself first. Now, it Countries can understand that, hey, if we have really good relations with these other five countries, it will benefit us. We'll give a little bit. So we're going to get into a trade block with these other countries and lower tariffs between our countries because we think in our country that if we lower trade barriers that these other countries will buy more stuff from us, which will benefit us. We will, you know, there'll be some competition between farmers in Thailand and farmers in southern China, but... Countries get into trade packs and other customs unions because they believe it will benefit them overall. The low, In general, on planet Earth, when you lower trade barriers, when you lower tariffs, when you lower taxes, when you lower any impediments to movement of goods and services between countries, everybody wins. This has been historically proven true a million times over. If country A and country B, who hated each other before and had a wall between them, if they get rid of the wall and say anybody can do anything they want, historically, country A and country B get more rich because more people sell more stuff to each other between countries. And whatever country A does better than country B, country B buys that and vice versa. Whatever country B does better than country A, people in country A buy that for cheaper. So that is why we have this thing called free trade. People, economists love the concept of free trade because it allows countries or peoples to do what they do best and sell that stuff for cheaper to other places where it's harder to do that stuff. It's super hard to grow pineapples in Alaska. Can you do it? Sure you can. 
in a greenhouse, when you burn lots of energy and takes lots of time, and therefore it makes the pineapple cost $300 per pineapple. So you don't grow pineapples in Alaska. You buy pineapples from Hawaii. It's easy there. They're cheap. They do it better. And vice versa, there's shit tons of salmon in Alaska. Can you make salmon grow in Hawaii? Sure, you can try, but it's not easy and it costs more money. Why the hell would you buy Hawaiian-grown salmon? It's not their habitat. So Hawaii grows pineapples, Alaska grows salmon, and they trade those products between each other. And now I'm hungry because I want a nice pineapple-basted piece of salmon in front of me because that shit would be good with soy sauce because we're talking about China. Okay. Uh, that's, I, I'm sorry, what, what was the question I was talking about? Oh, how has the Chinese Belt Initiative impacted Southeast Asian countries? Uh, the Southeast Asian countries have this uh, trade pact already in place called ASEAN, A-S-E-A-N, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And actually they, as a singular unit whole, are working together to compete with China as a whole. And by the way, Jacob, yes, I will definitely put pineapples on pizza. Hell, I'll put salmons on, salmon on pizza right now. So ASEAN is a collaborative effort and a trade pact between the Southeast Asian nations because if they individually try to compete with China, they lose every time. If uh, Cambodia tries to sell, you know, I don't know, yarn cheaper than China, they'll lose because China has 1.5 billion people and they can make yarn super cheap because they have so many workers and they're so good at it. So you don't want to compete with China, not individually, but Cambodia can join a group called ASEAN and collectively they can say, we're going to negotiate trade with our group between us and China and therefore we can be a little bit more competitive. So to answer your question, uh, uh, J. Kim, the Belt and Road Initiative has certainly put pressure on the Asian, Southeast Asian countries in ASEAN. It's put pressure on India. Uh, it's put pressure on a lot of other places that had a bit of a competitive edge because China is trying to grow its reach to connect all these other countries of the world and, and uh, tether them. I love the word tether. Tether these other places to China. China wants to be the center that all of the rest of the Asian and African world is tethered to. Everything will go through China. And again, not making fun of China, good on them. They're long-term thinkers. They're saying, hey, here's how we hold our strategic advantage is that we want to work with other countries and tie them to us, bind them to us, no doubt. Ah, And that sometimes offends other countries who had a bit of strategic advantage in their neighborhood. And that gets us back to the quad. Why is the quad forming up? The quad is forming up because India and uh, Japan and uh, Australia and the United States are saying, hey, China's reach is getting really wide. We should join, we should make a club to give options to these other countries to be able to trade with that they're not beholden to whatever China wants them to do. It's an interesting time. It's a fascinating time. I love this time. I love when things change and we can talk about it. So that's how it's affecting Southeast Asia. It does put pressure on them, but it might pressure ASEAN countries to actually join up with the quad. Damn it. I think we need a whole damn lecture just on the quad. 
I love the quad. Not because I personally love the quad. I just find it fascinating that it's, what I say? Poto. Poto. If you repeat it enough, people start saying it. So, Poto. What did I say Poto stood for? Pacific Ocean, Pacific Ocean Treaty Organization. There you go. By the way, there's another uh, group called, um, oh, it's eluding me, the TPP. Go look up the TPP, which Donald Trump crushed on day one he was in office. The TPP was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that was an economic union between all the quad countries and a bunch of others, including uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand and South Korea. And that was created by the Obama administration basically for the same effects of, hey, let's have a United States-centered trade group to counter China. Uh, but for reasons that, unfortunately, the Trump administration doesn't even understand what it did, uh, the Trumpies were like, no, TPP's bad, it's horrible, it's stupid, it's dumb, we're getting rid of the TPP because it's dumb. And then three years later, he started a trade war with China, which is basically what the TPP was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to make fun of the Trumpies, but you have to understand some of the things that this administration has done. It's like you guys did not think this through. Do you think everything Obama done was just Obama did was just bad because it's Obama? You stupid. And you hate him because he's Democrat. And it's like your strategic objectives in the Trump administration administration are to counter the growth of China. The TPP's only, only principal organization was to counter the influence of China. And Trump came in office and said, no, it's stupid, it's bad, go away. And I'm going to counter China now. And you're like, <laughs> did anybody tell this guy what the hell was going on? But now I'm going off on a rant that I could do a whole other rant just on the TPP. Okay. Taiwan. We're about two hours from Taiwan. Is that okay? Are we almost, are we still on track? Yeah, we're not ever going to get to Taiwan tonight. Damn it, I messed this up again. There we go. Okay, so last slide was, uh, did China know about the outside world? Sure it did, but it's primarily been very uh, uh, centered on its own interest and not interested in the outside world. Uh, so always centered on the core. And if you can remember back to all the slides I showed you like 15 hours ago, this is an overlay of some of the more uh, distinct Chinese empires over time, dynasties, just overlaid. And if you overlay them all, you say, oh, the East has always been the core of action for Chinese history and for Chinese culture. Always centered on the core in the East, uh, physically separate from the rest of the planet, by the way. So isolationist, perhaps, uh, culturally and economically, because they're looking out for themselves. But you also have to remember they physically were a long distance from everywhere else. So, you know, 4,000 years ago, no one even knew about the Western Hemisphere yet. China is on the far side of the world 2,000 years ago. Hell, China's on the far side of the world 1,000 years ago. So they always were semi-isolated just physically by the way the world is lined up. And that helped make them culturally distinct from the rest of the planet, perhaps intentionally when it comes to economics and trade and philosophy. Uh, and so the culture over time, and this is a generalist statement, is fairly conservative. And when things make their way to China, including in today's world, sorry, got to bring it back and be real, when things from the outside world permeate China a thousand years ago, 
they get absorbed. Nobody says, oh, wow, that's a great idea from India. We're going to give India all the creds. No, it gets absorbed and becomes Chinese. They put their own spin on it. It becomes part of their culture. So you can come from over here and you can come from America and you can bring this technology from Africa and you can bring this agricultural product from Hawaii. And when it comes here, we make it ours. It's ours. China is a such a long-standing entity and a, uh, a persevering one. So China always remains China. Even when new elements are brought into the fray, it's still distinctly China. It doesn't change. These things become Chinese. Uh, now, on that note, trade has been historically one way. And again, I would argue, what's really changed? <laughs> How much has that changed in the modern world? Not much. Although it's starting to uh, during this trade embargo and uh, perhaps a European and American pushback against China being the manufacturer of planet Earth. But that's not done yet. Now, that's all I'm going to say about ancient Chinese history. Now I want to get to more modern Chinese history. So I was supposed to get to this slide one hour and 10 minutes ago. So we can cut it. If you want to cut it, Katie, if anybody wants to cut it, I can just pick this up tomorrow. But I'll try to get through the era that China totally sucked. So I've now painted this picture that big dynasties come and go for thousands of years. Sometimes they're great and take over bigger areas. Sometimes they suck and they retract. But forever, China is China, and Chinese culture is Chinese, and it is unique in terms of everything from thought processes to government styles to reading and writing and art and architecture, Chinese. However, and by and large, they've been on top for most of the last three to 4,000 years. They've been a center of everything, but not the last 200. And so China totally sucked. From 1750, and I always round stuff out, to about 1950. It's more like 1949 is the appropriate date. Uh, and this is referred to in China as the period of humiliation. The period of humiliation. Because China is so used to being awesome that now in today's 21st century, they still have a sense of embarrassment. They sucked so bad for 200 years. That 200 years, by the way, coincides with, how old did I say America was? 200 years. So the entire lifespan of the United States of America, everyone here from George Washington until Americans 20 years ago, has looked at China as some crappy little Asian country. Oh, they make a bunch of stuff. They make some crappy clothes or whatever. You need to keep that in context to understand the modern Chinese mind, that they understand that they used to be large and in charge for thousands of years. And just the last 200 that brings us into the modern era is the 200 years they sucked. Okay, how did they suck? Well, I've mentioned now, well, they're kind of isolationist, kind of one-way trade. Uh, if things make it to them, they just absorb them. China actually never had any grand designs for territorial expansion outside of China proper. Yes, they took over Tibet and Xinjiang and maybe uh, the northwestern or northeastern areas. 
and maybe Taiwan, which we're trying to get to. But China never had global ambitions to take over the world. I don't know, like, say, the French or the British. Hell, even the Mongolians. We look at Mongolia now, it's just like, oh, isn't that quaint country in the middle of Asia with a couple million people? Genghis Khan's from there. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, they are. But Genghis Khan and his crew kicked the living shit out of everyone across Eurasia and took it over. China never did that. Why did that? Why did they not do that? Because if you think you're the center of the universe, why would you go anywhere else? So China never expanded much beyond its core heartland of East Asia. And most trade and global interaction was all one way. People come here to buy stuff. They give us their money. They go away. We get them the hell out of here. But that started to unravel into the modern era where the Europeans do become uh, industrialized and start their colonial explorations and taking over the world, including taking over the Americas, taking over Africa, taking over India, and they eventually made their way over to China. So age of European exploration and colonization finally reaches China, not till the 1800s. Why? Because China was far away from them. If China was where, I don't know, say Morocco is in today's world, the Europeans would have taken them over before 1700. But China was really far away. So it took time and all as that time progressed, the Europeans are taking over more territory, getting more resources, becoming more powerful. And they finally get over to China at the height of their power when China was actually at its weakest point in the modern era. The Manchu dynasty, uh, based on the Jurchen ethnic group. Thank God somebody pointed that out yesterday. The Jurchens uh, became a uh, was an ethnic group that's not Han Chinese that rallied and ended up taking over the Chinese empire at the time. And we call them the Manchu dynasty in hindsight. And they had been in power since the 1600s. But as all, Jap uh, all Chinese empires or Chinese dynasties, they come and go. They have a life cycle. A powerful group of people take over. They throw out the old dynasty that's weak. They become powerful, they grow, they expand, they're awesome, they have a golden age, and then rot sets in, and they become corrupt, and they're old, and ineffectual, and weak, and they crash and burn, and a new dynasty takes over. That's just history. It's not Chinese history. It's all history. Why do you think there's no more Roman Empire? Because they eventually sucked at some point, and they got overthrown, and they went away. So this isn't anything new for the Chinese history lesson. But the Manchus, at this particular time, when Europe and European powers were becoming expressly powerful and technologically advanced and taking over the world, happened to accidentally for the Chinese be the time that the Manchu dynasty was on its way out and becoming ineffectual and weak and corrupt and sucky and technologically behind because of isolationism, because the Chinese were like, well, we don't care about outside technology. We're the best. And that would have been fine a thousand years ago, but not so fine 200 years ago when the Europeans are showing up with military hardware that the Chinese had never seen before. So you got to think about the context that the Manchus were crashing and burning at the same time the Europeans are at their height of power and show up on their doorstep. So by the mid-1800s, the United Kingdom, France, Ger Germany, Germany was in Asia. Yep. Uh, the Dutch? Yeah. The Dutch took over Indonesia for Pete's sake. 
the Dutch, the Netherlands, that's like as big as my backyard with dikes to prevent flooding of the whole country. And they ended up controlling a dynasty across planet Earth, including all of the Netherlands and parts of some Chinese ports. So the Dutch, the Germans, even the Russians had established trading ports. And by established, I mean, they uh, took over towns that became inroads for European and Russian powers to forcibly take over trade in China. Remember, for 4,000 years, the Chinese control all trade. The Chinese decide what's going to come in. The Chinese decide what products they'll allow in and what products they'll allow to be exported. And this becomes, uh, just crashes and burns by the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, where these other powers, much more aggressive and technologically advanced powers, just come in and say, oh, we don't give a shit what you want. We're going to set up shop and do what we want because we're militarily more powerful than you. And I love this map because it shows spheres of influence by, say, 1850, 1860, 1870. So China was never overthrown. Uh, the British didn't take over China. The French didn't take over China. By the way, the French did take over Vietnam. The French did take over Cambodia. Uh, the French did take over Laos. The British did take over India. No one ever took over China. It was just, even though it was weak and ineffectual, it was too big. No one wanted to take it over. It had, I don't know, half a billion people at that point. No one wanted to take it over and have to deal with that crap. All these outside powers just wanted the trade. They just wanted the stuff. They just wanted to be able to control the trade and the money because all money prior to this flowed into China and the European powers got goods and services out of it, which means they were paying. The British and the French and the Europeans wanted to reverse that. They wanted to go in and say, we control the trade so we get everything we want and you still pay us on top of that. So it was spheres of influence. And the Russians, of course, being up north, controlled the northern parts of China. Uh, the Germans controlled the Shandong Peninsula. Or is it Shandong? Shandong Peninsula up north. What's that? Where's Eric Lemonium? I just can't remember. Uh, we've even been there, and I can't remember the name of the peninsula off the top of my head. Uh, the, the funny thing is, is the uh, Chinese... Does anybody know that peninsula lit up in yellow up there in northern China, right across from the Koreas. I should know. I'm sorry. I'm just tired. Uh, but I only like to throw this little tidbit out that the Germans controlled that territory for a while. And shocker to you all, most of the incipient Chinese breweries started in that same area. So when you think about Chinese beers like Tsingtao, that was all brewed in areas that used to be under German influence. Surprise! <laughs> I love those little cultural tidbits. Anyway, the Germans actually controlled territory in this area or spheres of influence where they controlled the ports, controlled trade. It is Shandong. Okay, I was right. I always forget. What's the one, what's the famous city down south then? Guangzhou. Sorry, I got confused with Guangzhou. It is Shandong Peninsula. Uh, the British had a sphere of influence, in, including controlling outright whole cities like Hong Kong and Shanghai. Hey, Hong Kong, that's in current events. Yeah, the British used to control that. Uh, and the French even controlled parts of the South. And eventually the Japanese ended up controlling some of it. But let me get to that point. By 1842, and I would do much more lecturing about this if I wasn't out of steam and out of time, you had this thing called the Opium Wars. 
where the British had an outright war against the Chinese government. And the war, and a lot of people don't know this, the war was the United Kingdom declared war on China, and the war was about the right of the British to sell heroin to Chinese people. You think I'm exaggerating? You think I'm making that shizzle up? I'm not. Go look at the core cause of the war. The British, uh, this is just after uh, Adam Smith's 1776 treaty called Capitalism. Uh, the British said, we have the right to sell anything we want to anyone we want. It's free trade. And it's a God-given right. And therefore, we have the God-given right to sell drugs to Chinese people. And again, you think I'm exaggerating. I'm, I'm just not. I'm just making it sound funny. Because otherwise, it's really sad. <laughs> so the British declared war because the Chinese government said, hey, dude, you got to stop selling crack to our people. And the British said, no, we don't. God has given us the right to sell crack. And they got into a war over it. And in this war, the British resoundingly defeated the Chinese government like it was sad. And so that opened the doors to everybody else saying, hey, anybody can beat up China. They really suck right now. And in 1843, because of the Opium Wars, the Chinese ceded control of Hong Kong to the British. That plays into very current events, by the way. The British controlled Hong Kong for 100 years because they fought for the right to sell crack to Chinese people. True story. Uh, so the uh, Chinese lose Hong Kong in 18, uh, same year. They lose Macau to the Portuguese. And by the way, these areas are down south. They're significantly important trading ports, which is why these European powers wanted them to get inroads to the goods and services they wanted and to control the trade so they made money coming and going. Uh, by 1868, this thing called the Meiji Restoration was happening next door in Japan. So Japan, a country that was far behind China for its entire existence, looks at what the British and the other European powers are doing, and it says, hey, we want to do that too. So the Japanese take their lead from the Europeans and industrialize and say, we want to become a powerful world entity too and redo our militaries and redo our economies and become rich and powerful and go conquer other countries. And they start doing that in 1868. Uh, at the same time, the, Japan, um, so the Chinese do the reverse. And they say, no, we're not going to change anything. We're going to fight against innovation. We're going to fight against technology. And we're going to fight against the Europeans coming here which led to them losing again and again and again and getting further behind to the point that by 1895, the Japanese, who were their inferior a mere 30 or 40 years prior, declared war on China and beat them handily. And that's when Taiwan fell into Japanese hands. Hey, that's another current event that we're trying to get to tonight. What's the deal with Taiwan? Taiwan was part of, of China for a while, but the Japanese took it from them in 1895. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, and at the same time, Japan, I'm sorry, China was losing control over the Korean Peninsula. It never outright controlled the Korean Peninsula, but it exerted much influence. The Korean Peninsula was kind of a vassal state to China, and the Japanese take that over too. So you have a situation where 
the Chinese government is still there. They're kind of in charge, but they don't really control anything that other entities want to control. So you have European powers controlling trade, the Japanese coming in and now starting to take over actually territory. Uh, and this really culminates in 1900. That's almost exactly 100 years ago with this thing called the Boxer Rebellion where a bunch of Chinese radicals said, dude, our country sucks. Our government sucks. And our government's so ineffectual and they're just letting these Europeans and letting the Japanese take over our country. So we're going to take up arms. We're getting our, our swords and we're going to go out and take hostages in the diplomatic quarters of Beijing or... No, it wasn't Beijing, Tai, Taipei, Shanghai. No, the main uh, capital of China at the time, uh, this radical group went into the diplomatic quarters and held everybody hostage and said, we are holding these people hostage until you leave our country and leave China alone. The result of which is all of the surrounding countries came in and beat the living shit out of them. I didn't mean to get to that. Uh, Meaning that the Japanese, the even the Americans, the Germans, the French, and the British all sent in troops and crushed this uprising. Slaughterhouse. So even on Chinese soil at that time, people trying to stick up for the Chinese government, or at least say, hey, stick up for China, were absolutely decimated and there was nothing the Chinese government could do. The Chinese military basically didn't even exist uh, which is why this uprising happened by people that weren't the military. The Chinese uh, government itself was basically hostage. It couldn't do anything that foreign powers didn't want them to do. And this is when you get to the point, and it's funny, that's exactly 1900, because it makes it so easy to remember, that you have to understand this is no longer a sovereign state. It's a state. People recognize it like, oh, well, this piece of area on the map, we call that China. But you can't say it's sovereign. It had no real authority even on its own soil. Foreign powers did what they wanted to in China, and there was nothing the government can do about it. Now, again, many people in China were like, well, this really sucks, and our government really sucks, and this is terrible. But they're contending with a disorganized, chaotic government that's ineffectual, while foreign powers with serious firepower or kind of in control. And what can people do besides be pissed off? But that was uh, eight, up, up to uh, 1900. Don't things get better in the 1900s? No, it actually doesn't get much better for a time or two longer. The people of China were so pissed off at the situation in their own country that revolutions did start up and people did call for the overthrow of the Manchu empire and the overthrow of the emperor at the time. And uh, by 1912, enough people were pissed off. And it, again, it was not really a sovereign state that the Chinese people said, well, what's the point of this? Let's just overthrow the emperor. And the last uh, Qing emperor uh, was removed from the throne and the Republic of China was created. So China, for several thousand years, was led by basically its monarchy. They call them dynasties, but it's monarchy. It's family lines, family dynasties that rise and fall. It's a system that has been in place for longer than anything else. Uh, and the Chinese people had enough of it and said, that's it. We're throwing them. We're getting them out of here. 
there's a famous Bernardo Bertolucci film called The Last Emperor. And the last emperor of the Qing dynasty was actually a kid. He was like eight years old. You okay? Oh, you've seen that movie? Mm. So they didn't just get rid of the kid emperor. They were getting rid of the whole system. And they said, hey, we're going to start a new government and a new state called the Republic of China in 1912. Oh, look, I had the picture there. I forgot about it. The last emperor. And so uh, in that, whoops, go back, go back, go back. What happened? So uh, in this cauldron of chaos, and you do have to understand it was a cauldron of chaos, still in the 1900s, still largely controlled by foreign powers, with no effective central government. In fact, it had broken down to like regional governments and regional warlords who just said, hey, look, I'm controlling southern China and we're controlling up here because the central government sucks and they're not doing anything. And we overthrew uh, the, emperor, the emperor, so there's no central government anymore. So in that vacuum, other entities cropped up and said, hey, well, I want to control China, or we think China should be a, uh, um, we should reestablish the monarchy. Remember, anytime there's a vacuum of power or an overthrow of, of political power, there's lots of different voices that say, hey, what should we do next? And not everybody agrees. So there would have been some people that said, hey, we should never have overthrown the emperor. Let's go back to monarchy. Let's, let's find a new emperor. Some people said that. Some people looked around and said, hey, we, we think we should be a democracy. We should be a democracy like all these other rich countries are being. Uh, you know, or even like uh, Great Britain. We should, maybe we could be a, a constitutional monarchy. We could, maybe we could put the emperor back on, but be a monarch or be a democracy in practice. Uh, and some people were looking around saying, uh, hey, look what's going on. The, this place called the Soviet Union just started up. That communism thing looks pretty good. You know, we got a half billion to three quarters of a billion people here, and we're mostly used to being a monarchy. Why don't we just establish a communist state? So there were lots of folks in lots of different arena saying, hey, we should do this, we should do that. I was trying to talk about Taiwan two hours ago, so let me get back to that now. Specifically, there was a guy named Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek and his group were pro-democracy. And there was actually another guy, I think his name is Sun Yat-sen, that were campaigning for democracy and had gone out to the rest of the world saying, hey, will you guys support us being a democracy so we can join the League of Democratic Nations on planet Earth uh, during this time of chaos while things are going crazy? We don't know what's going on. They, there were Chinese people that came to America and tried to convince U.S. senators to support a democratic movement in China. Uh, and yeah, the long and short of it, I'm always trying to highlight things for you. By 1928, these competing forces of who should control what kind of came to a head because Chiang Kai-shek, a military guy, and the nationalist movement, Chinese nationalists wanted to create a democratic nationalist state in China, defeated what was the early uh, entree of the communist uh, party in China, uh, and other warlords which had controlled different territories of China, to reunite China. But even this was kind of short-lived. So that's Chiang Kai-shek, nationalist, remember that. 
By 30, 1934, 1935, China had other issues. I'm not, again, the headline for this is the 20th is not much kinder to China. Because if you know world history, you know that 1930s is a significant era because what's going on in the rest of the world? Well, this guy named Hitler. Anybody heard of him? This Hitler dude was trying to take over, was rising to power to take over Europe. And these Japanese folks who ended up allying with Hitler were rising and increasing their military power and had already made inroads and taken over parts of China. And World War II is getting ready to, to crop up where the Japanese nationalist and the Nazi socialist are going to team up. And so China was already in a being pinched by this. And because there was not a definitive government in charge, even when Chiang Kai-shek kind of uh, united China in 1928. There was a civil war in the 30s. While all these other entities are rising up, uh, China falls into a civil war between these two major powers, the communist and the nationalist. Mao Zedong led the communist. And now here's another guy you probably have heard his name. I bet you most of you haven't heard of Chiang Kai-shek. He's more important to the, the Taiwan story. But Mao Zedong is an important popular world figure because, uh, you know, the end of the story, he ends up uniting China under the communist banner. But in the 34-35 Civil War, Mao Zedong led Chinese communists on the long march uh, uh, from a series of defeats to the nationalist forces. And I would, I would go into much more detail about this, but I'm already two hours behind. But suffice to say, Mao Zedong becomes kind of the George Washington of modern China because Chiang Kai-shek and his forces should have wiped them out. Chiang Kai-shek had already beaten the communist forces. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists has pretty much routed them from all their serious strongholds of power. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists had annihilated them on several battles where you just got to say, dude, the communists almost got completely slaughtered. But somehow... Despite all of that, Mao Zedong became the leader of the communist remnants and led them on what's called the Long March, running away from the nationalists to reconfigure their forces up in Yan'an. And despite all odds, I mean, they were down and out. They, they should have been defeated in 34-35, but somehow they rallied, stuck it out, got support from local or, uh, rural populations, and started to slowly rally their forces back over the course of a decade, the same decade that's leading up to World War II, where China's going to get the shit beat out of it again. So all of that's happening in the background. And then starting in 1937 and going all the way through to the end of World War II, where the Japanese were bombed into submission by the United States, China becomes a battleground, a battleground in which the Japanese uh, commit all of horrific atrocities, uh, including what we'd call biological warfare, introducing plague, poisoning water supplies in China. Uh, the Chinese uh, had taken over most of the major cities in eastern China, uh, including Shanghai, including Beijing. Uh, there's this thing called the Rape of Nanking, where the Japanese army comes in and literally just for days and weeks slaughters and rapes a city of millions. 
just horrific, horrific history. And in this, during this period, the communists, led by Mao Zedong, tried to fight back against the Japanese incursion. The nationalists kind of sit back and chill. And if that sounds weird, um, you have to understand it was a calculated risk by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. The nationalists said, hey, look, World War II is horrible. Japan is slaughtering us. There's no point fighting back against them. Let's just wait until the war is over. And we'll save our money and we'll save our guns. Because the real fight is for the heart of the Chinese soul. So we're going to not fight against China. We're not going to get involved in World War II. We're going to take all the money and guns that the Americans and the Allies will give us, but we're going to save them to kill commies whenever this World War II business is over. Meanwhile, the communists under Mao Zedong cause chaos. They, they harass Japanese troops. They sabotage Japanese supply lines. They, they, they do all sorts of crazy antics that makes them local heroes. They stand up against Japanese oppression and Japanese occupation, which makes people in northern China and in their rural areas support and love the communists because they're actually fighting back against the Japanese while the nationalists are just kind of hanging out. Now, you know the end of the story. Japan loses World War II, just like Hitler did. So they all lose. And in losing... Um, the Japanese are pushed out and there was a unified effort to defeat Japan very briefly at the end of the war between the nationalists and the communists that said, hey, look, the war's almost over. Let's purge out the rest of the Japanese. Uh, and everybody said, yeah, you're right. We should do that. And then one second later, they said, okay, war back on. Uh, <laughs> now that the Japanese are finally gone, we are going to fight for the soul of China and the nationalists say we want to be something closer to a Western democracy. And the communists say we want to be something closer to the communist Russia, communist Soviet Union. And they go back at it. Unfortunately for the nationalists, again, many of us in the West, we're supporting them. We're like, yes, we want China to be a democracy. Wouldn't that be great? Unfortunately, Chiang Kai-shek was an idiot, much like Hitler was an idiot. And they miscalculated the entire situation. So while Chiang Kai-shek and his group sat on the sidelines of World War II, Mao Zedong and his crew were active and rallied the hearts of the Chinese population who saw them as heroes, who saw them as uh, people, the fighters who saved China while the nationalists sat on the sideline. So by 1949, 19, after, after the brief purging of the Japanese in 1946, Civil War back on, 1947, 1948. But by 1949, it was all over. The communists, which should by rights have been annihilated totally in 1934, just over a decade later, were in a position of massive power and popular support. That's why they had massive power, because the people supported them. That's why it's the People's Republic of China, by the way, PRC. You know what I'm saying? The PRC is the place to be if you're a communist. <laughs> so the People's Republic of China gained massive support during the war years and ended up victorious in the Civil War in 1949. Is that all good? I swear we're going to get to Taiwan in the next five minutes. Now that I've taught you all this history, I can tell you what's up with Taiwan.
and we'll, we'll have to cut it because I'm running out of steam. But I want to get us to a place that I can tell you about current events in Taiwan tomorrow. But here's why Taiwan is an issue. Because in 1949, the communists basically wiped out the nationalist movement. Chiang Kai-shek and his group sucked. They miscalculated and they had no support. And they lost the Civil War in 1949 to the communists. And instead of conceding defeat and being like, okay, you guys win. China's now communist. They never conceded defeat. Uh, They were run out of China proper. They were run out of the mainland and the nationalist forces withdrew to the island of, wait for it, wait for it, Taiwan. Because remember, Japan had controlled Taiwan since 1895 and Japan just got defeated. So the nationalist forces had already set up camp there and in their rout and defeat in 48-49, They all withdrew the rest of their forces to the Republic of Taiwan. And Mao Zedong, who should have died in 1933 and 34 and 35, and he survived, ends up being dear leader, hero of the PRC, the George Washington of China, which stood up against tyranny, which withstood assault from world war and Japanese aggression, to liberate the Chinese people. And if you've not learned anything else in today's lecture, which I'm sure all three of you still tuning in have already learned a lot, but the end game for this, if you want to understand modern China, modern China starts in 1949. After 200 years of suck, China stands back up. In fact, that's a quote from Mao Zedong. We have stood back up. The period of humiliation is over. We are a unified China. We are a sovereign state once more. We are in control of our territory under a united, singular government. The first time in 200 years, China starts back on its progress of becoming a world power once more, a situation it was quite used to for the previous 3,000 years. You got all that? Does that make sense? Is that cool? And that's the deal with Taiwan and Tibet. I will just intro this and then I'll cut out. Well, I would yes, just, questions. Yeah, say you want to take any questions. Yeah, sure, I'll take questions. It's a, the person I can never actually, his, he has Chinese characters on YouTube. So this part of history, it's just a version in China and Taiwan and which party did says defense Japan. I don't know what he meant by defense Japan. Push back against Japan. Mao was the hero in mainland and CKS was the one in Taiwan for Japan. So CKS, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, so uh, a Chinese listener on YouTube. And we, he actually lives in Taiwan. So. Lives in Taiwan. So a Chinese listener, a Taiwanese, whichever one you want to go by. Taiwanese is actually a different ethnicity. Most people in Taiwan are actually ethnically Chinese now. Uh, but the uh, a listener on YouTube whose name we can't pronounce because it's in Chinese characters. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not that good. Uh, I said that, yeah, there's a different version of events that we've been taught. And in our version, Mao Zedong was the hero of the mainland that pushed out Japanese aggression. And Chiang Kai-shek was the hero. And the nationalists were the heroes that liberated Taiwan. Well, you live in Taiwan right now. And Taiwan was controlled by the nationalists since 1949. So do you think maybe 
I'm just suggesting it. Just suggesting it. Do you think maybe that's not a coincidence that you in Taiwan learned a different sort of history? Because if you talk to your brothers and sisters, and I don't mean that ethnically, I'm just talking human race. If you talk to Chinese brothers and sisters over in mainland China, do you think they were taught the same history that Chiang Kai-shek liberated Taiwan? Probably not. So it all depends on the story that your government wants you to hear. In fact, the story that I've heard about Taiwan, and if Eric Lin is still listening, he can maybe uh, hook me up with some details. The uh, A friend of mine who's lived in Taiwan for a very long time. Uh, the story that I've heard about Taiwan, which is probably not hard to verify on Wikipedia, is that when Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists took over Taiwan, there was actually a mass slaughter of ethnically Taiwanese people. So that that I've heard differing accounts of that story as well. I have never heard the story that the nationalists did anything, any great maneuvers to push out the Japanese. Now, as I suggested, in 1946, there was a concerted effort between the communists and the nationalists to unify, to stop fighting with each other and unify to purge out the last vestiges of Japanese power. But that was very short-lived. And uh, I've not seen a whole lot of accounts that paint Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists in a very good light in terms of them fighting against Japanese aggression or really participating in World War II at all. And by the way, there is a lot of books written by uh, American generals and American military people who were quite pissed the hell off that Chiang Kai-shek and his crew did not help out American forces more as they were fighting against the Japanese. So I'm getting my blood pressure up like I have a dog in this hunt. I don't. I'm not saying this is correct, but I uh, I think his name is General Stillwell. Go Google Stillwell. General Stillwell uh, was a, a famous American general who was helping in the Pacific theater, specifically in China, fight against the Japanese before the Japanese even entered the war uh, during Pearl Harbor. And Stillwell was in there, and his personal accounts working out of China were saying, holy crap, all the dudes, we've been funneling money and guns to the nationalists, and they're just sitting on their damn hands. We're just trying to get them to help us build airfields so we can fly in supply planes, and they won't even help us do that. So that's my knowledge of World War II U.S. interest and the, with the nationalists during that era. Again, I'm a generalist, so I'm not going to pretend like I know everything. That's just the stuff that I've read. I, I've, uh, whoever made the comment, our, our Chinese friends. Uh, goes by Rex. Rex. Rex in Taiwan. I have never heard of this. I'm not disputing it. I've just never heard that the nationalists did that much to fight against the Japanese. Uh, and if you do a little bit of research, it probably won't be hard for you to find that the nationalists taking over Taiwan was not great for the local ethnic Taiwanese. In fact, it was pretty bad. So, again, in hindsight of history, from the variety of sources I've looked at, don't paint the nationalists in a particularly good light for the war or for their taking over of Taiwan. Other question? Actually, I see this one from Cameron, the map god. Thank God, Cameron, the map god's back in the house. 
Uh, oh, I do have to shout out to Yakov. Yakov always makes the most hilariously awesome on-point comments, which is, in a way, the Boxer Rebellion did exactly what terrorists are doing today. Yakov, you just nailed it. Uh, terrorists are the people that lose a revolution. That's plain and simple. If you stand up for freedom or stand up for this or stand up for your religion or stand up for your nationality or stand up for your ethnicity, as long as you win, you're a hero. If you lose, you're a terrorist. <laughs> so well said, Jacob, well said. So, And then Cameron the Map God after that says, if the nationalists went to Taiwan and they are still technically the Republic of China, not PRC, then why isn't it kosher that it is totally different country? That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow since I've already gone for another two hours tonight without getting to the shizzle. Damn it. I love you people. I love this. If there was any money in this, I would do this for a living. It's not that I need money, but I do have to pay the bills. <laughs> History is always written by the victor. Uh, and back to Yakov's comments. Back to Yakov's comments. Uh, make no bones about it. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, all declared terrorists by the British government. Don't make any bones about it. A group of people were trying to rip a piece of property away from a powerful empire. Of course they were terrorists. Of course they were. But then they won, so they're our founding fathers and our heroes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Uh, I will end on setting up tomorrow. I didn't want a cliffhanger it just on saying, oh yeah, there's this thing called Taiwan. But I've now set the stage of the nationalist who lost the civil war in China to the communist, escaped to the island of Taiwan, recently liberated from the Japanese who had taken it over 50 years earlier and set up camp and said, we didn't lose the war. We're still fighting the war. And that's why it's so important to understand about why this is such a critical issue. Even now, in 2020, we're talking... Crap, I'm bad at math. We're talking at this at this age of the, uh, uh, 75 years later, Taiwan still might cause a conflict between major world powers because its status is in dispute. And this is how the dispute starts. The island lost to the Japanese in 1895. Japan withdraws in 1946. The nationalists take it over in 1946. In 1949, the Republic of China was established and said, we are glorious Republic of China. We're communist. The nationalists said, nope, we are, excuse me, we are China. We are the rightful rulers of China. We just happen to be living in Taiwan. And remember, Chiang Kai-shek says, we actually won the Civil War. We're just running the country from Taiwan. And Mao Zedong says, you a fool. We won the war. We control mainland China, and you are a renegade province that should never have existed, except we're too busy to come beat the living hell out of you right now. And that seems like a good cutting point that we can just pick up tomorrow very quickly. 
uh, how that's playing out into the modern world. Because here we are, this last quote is from 1949. And by the way, no, these are not actual quotes. Mao Zedong did not say, you a fool, although I do like that. <laughs> you a fool! Uh, maybe 50 Cent said it, but I like Mao Zedong saying, you a fool! Um, that, this is how this whole situation has started. A situation that's now 70 years old and may come to a head in your lifetime, figuring out... Who does control this island off the coast of China? And why does everybody care so much? And why didn't China just go ahead and take over in 1949? And why does the United States sell this little island millions of shit tons worth of weapons every year? Why does the U.S. care? Why does China want it back? All of these questions and much, 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 much more will not be answered tomorrow because we'll never get to the second slide. <laughs> but unless there's another question, we will now, uh, Cameron the Map God, we will cliffhanger it. That is the basis. So I at least did get to the basis of why Taiwan is disputed even 70 years later. Now you got it. If you stuck with me for two hours of ancient Chinese history up to modern history, you understand why it's in dispute. And we will play it forward with the parties, how it's now playing out in the 21st century and why it might cause a conflict in the near future. Comment. Another comment. So Vikram asks. Vikram! Welcome to the party, Vikram. Love you, brother. Are you going to cover India and China border issues after Taiwan session? Yeah, I think I will. I think I will because I think I can, I think, again, I always think I can cover Taiwan issues fairly succinctly now that I set the stage. So yeah, I probably will jump to the Indian uh, Chinese border dispute right after that. That one's actually fairly straightforward, although I'll give you just enough background on that. Is that cool? Because it's got everything to do with Tibet, the other thing that is in contention between China and uh, outside parties. So with that, unless there's another question or comment or concern, thank you all so much. For God's sakes, what's wrong with you people hanging out here for hours with some goofball like me talking about ancient Chinese secrets? And we'll do it again tomorrow night because what the hell? I'm enjoying the hell out of this. Thank you all so much for tuning in. As Katie always reminds me, uh, click uh, likes or... Subscribe. Uh, subscribe or... Twitch. Yeah, if you could all check out Twitch. We loves the Twitch. You can subscribe on Twitch or become a follower or like or, hell, I don't know, send a suitcase full of money or cocaine. Whatever, whatever you kids are doing nowadays. Let's do that. And we'll see you again tomorrow. Same plaid time, same plaid channel. But for now, as always, party on.